Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. We will hear argument this morning in Case 19-1392, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. General Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey haunt our country. That's Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart laying out his state's opening argument on Wednesday, December 1st, challenging the framework of Roe v. Wade. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. While the decorum in the court was solemn, outside the atmosphere was confrontational, passionate, and at times, prayerful. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou, woman, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother. This week, we explore how we have arrived at this moment and how faith is being invoked on all sides of the debate. I went down to the Supreme Court on Wednesday, December 1st, before the oral arguments began. And everywhere I turned, I heard people of faith invoking their beliefs. I stand in solidarity with my sisters in Mississippi and Texas, and I demand for the Supreme Court to operate in the same spirit as is instructed through the Bible in Deuteronomy 16:19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. We are the righteous. It's what's good and evil. Here's the deal. They always chant, my body, my choice. But I b- firmly believe that that is another body that you have to protect. That That is a form of you, but that is a different body. If they don't want them, there are many, many families that can't have kids that would love to be able to adopt. Adopt them. Give them away. Whether, whatever their belief system is, they don't have to keep the baby. But I feel that, that they have to be honorable under the Bible in, in having that baby. But the issue of abortion access and the case before the court is not a First Amendment case about codifying the religious views on when human life begins. Despite the beliefs of the opponents and supporters of Roe, what is being debated in the case is something very different. How did we get here? Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. David Garrow is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of a half-dozen works of nonfiction, including Liberty and Sexuality, The Right to Privacy, and The Making of Roe v. Wade. He says the path to the current abortion debate started with a case called Griswold v. Connecticut. In the 1960s, the Roman Catholic Church had a lot of influence in states like Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York. And at the time, 
Roman Catholic leadership exercised its significant political power to prevent the repeal of an 80-year-old law on the Connecticut books that prohibited any person from using any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purpose of preventing conception. And it made it illegal for medical professionals to dispense contraception. In other words, in Connecticut in the 1960s, women could not buy birth control or contraceptive devices like diaphragms. That was something Planned Parenthood of Connecticut was trying to change. For more than 30 years, the organization tried to repeal the law. That's according to scholar David Bollier, who wrote Crusaders and Criminals, Victims and Visionaries, Historic Encounters between Connecticut citizens and the United States Supreme Court. Those efforts were successful in the Connecticut House because they were supported by liberal clergy. However, they were blocked in the Connecticut Senate because of the active lobbying of Roman Catholic leadership. Advocates unable to move the legislature turned their attention instead to the courts to provoke a legal battle. Estelle Greenwald, executive director of Planned Parenthood of Connecticut, opened the New Haven Birth Control Clinic to distribute family planning education and to dispense birth control to low-income women who could not afford private care. Dr. Lee Buxton was a prominent physician at Yale University. He agreed to serve as the clinic's medical director. Opening the clinic was an intentional, direct challenge to state lawmakers and prosecutors. No one was being arrested for using contraception privately. Getting arrested for distributing birth control would give Griswold and Buxton legal standing to appeal and make their case in the courts. According to Garrow, Efforts to repeal the law were actually supported by the public. Griswold was almost universally popular, but it was viewed as cleaning up antiquarian dirty laundry. But to be clear, that support did not translate into support for abortion or abortion access. As of 1965, when Griswold was decided, the notion that abortion could be a right was almost unheard of. In the Griswold decision, the Supreme Court ruled that the Connecticut law violated the privacy and liberty of a marital couple. So how did we get from legalizing birth control and privacy to abortion? In the wake of Griswold, a third-year law student wrote a long paper arguing that Griswold's analysis could easily be extended from contraception to abortion. And that paper was incredibly influential. Now, abortion was publicly, officially illegal everywhere in the United States in the mid-1960s. Now, it was widely available to privileged women who had private connections to MDs who were doing abortions on the down low. But for women who were working class, In poverty, they didn't have the funds or the connections to make use of these underground networks. In addition to privacy and contraception, Griswold highlights a class disparity, which often means a racial disparity between women with means and those without. That is still laid bare in today's abortion challenge. The most impacted? Families with limited resources. When Estelle Griswold won her case before the Supreme Court in a 7-2 decision, 
the question of abortion and the debate moved to the forefront of the national political conversation. The terms that were used back at that time were reform and repeal. Now, reform meant liberalizing state anti-abortion laws so that the woman had to get the approval of some committee of doctors at one or another hospital. But perhaps not at all surprisingly, lead to only a a trickle of women uh, successfully navigating this one-by-one medical approval process. Now, the fact that those early reform statutes have an underwhelming impact very quickly accelerates the reformers' evolution towards repeal, i.e. legalization of abortion uh, across the board without any medical permission process uh, being required. And in the spring of 1970, the New York State Legislature passed a repeal bill. Now, that is the landmark moment in legal change about abortion in America. The New York legalization is arguably more important than Roe v. Wade, which was decided two and a half years later. Now, July 1, 1970 is when that New York statute took effect. And so any woman in America who had the means and the money to get herself physically to New York State, could get a legal abortion. The present situation in Texas is exactly what existed all across America in 1970 and and earlier. A distinction between women who can travel, women in Texas who can afford an airplane flight, and women who can't. In the wake of Griswold, a new group of faith-based advocates emerged. But they were very different from the Roman Catholics who lobbied successfully to stop the legislature from repealing the 80-year-old ban on contraception. Liberal clergymen played a major role in advancing underground access through a network called the Clergy Consultation Service. The best-known figure in the Clergy Consultation Service movement uh, was a Texas-born pastor, uh, Reverend Howard Moody, who wore a cowboy hat and pastored Judson Memorial Church in Greenwich Village. Reverend Moody and hundreds of of other clergy across the country, probably about half Protestant, half Jewish, uh, not at all Roman Catholic, they developed uh, a network of contacts with reliable doctors who did illegal abortions. These pastors put themselves forward publicly as an an access window to tell women where and and who to go to. And it was very successful. And was it just in New York or was it all around the country? It was pretty much nationwide. And it was really the New York legalization that really mobilized the Catholic Church and the Catholic hierarchy to put much more of an investment into opposing abortion and abortion liberalization than the Roman Catholic Church had been doing uh, throughout the political battles of the late 1960s. Even in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade nationally, religious opposition to abortion is almost entirely Roman Catholic. And it's only really uh, during the Reagan years in the 1980s that opposition to abortion expands and becomes more ecumenical, particularly 
in evangelical Protestant circles. To this point, no one focused on embryonic development or the fetus. What one sees is more an argument about sexual freedom and women's sexual freedom. The opposition emphasis is that easy access to abortion, like easy access to contraception, will lead to an epidemic of sexual misbehavior. In Roe itself, the justices gave very little thought or consideration to whether the decision should protect women's access all the way to viability at about 23, 24 weeks, or should the decision simply cover the first trimester? And following some lower court analyses, the justices decide, almost off the cuff, to go to viability, not the first trimester. And that's the result, the sort of unconsidered result, that there really wasn't much of a discussion at all in 1972 of Is there a meaningful difference between a a 10-week abortion and a 20-week abortion? Religious groups opposed to abortion were quick to see an opening here. They put the fetus in the spotlight, reframing their arguments away from religious objections to more science-based objections about the viability of the fetus. And that led to a refocusing of their legal challenges. In subsequent abortion cases, like Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992, and now Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization. A very dedicated set of anti-abortion litigators has really pushed the religious uh, opposition to abortion or religiously grounded opposition uh, to abortion to the, the public sidelines, in my view. Abortion has become almost entirely a political, legal, constitutional argument now. Both religion and medicine have largely disappeared from the debate. We have the fetal heartbeat element, yes, still there, but particularly on the part of Mississippi's argument, it is entirely a matter of constitutional law. And on constitutional arguments in recent years, the conservatives have been winning because they have upped their game hugely, whereas liberal progressive constitutional thought and argument has become moribund. Oh my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls into heaven, especially those who most need of thy mercy. Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. For Elizabeth Cavell, connecting the current abortion challenges to the religious intent behind the law is paramount. She's the Associate Legal Counsel for the Freedom from Religion Foundation, an author of its amici brief submitted to the court in support of Mississippi's sole abortion clinic. In the early days, everyone acknowledged that there were religious bases underlying a lot of these restrictions. And so courts have chosen not to grapple with that. But we bring it up again in our brief to really point to the fact that Not a lot has changed in terms of the intent of legislators who pass these laws. We still have legislators who openly kind of profess that religious ideas, theology, basically religious ideas about ensoulment and when life begins and those really personal um, and spiritual and theological questions are the things that are motivating legislators to 
introduce and vote for these laws. Governors that sign these bills make statements that are really explicit about um, the religious purposes behind the bill and the religious inspiration for these kind of otherwise arbitrary decisions. Cavell's Freedom from Religion Foundation amici brief and those of others emphasize a concurring opinion by former Justice John Paul Stevens in 1989's Webster v. Reproductive Health Services. In that case, which upheld abortion access by a 5-4 to four margin, Justice Stevens points to the Constitution's Establishment Clause prohibiting Congress from establishing a religion. Stevens reasons the Establishment Clause requires a neutral, secular, rather than religious ideological foundations to U.S. laws. And because the precise moment when an unborn embryo or fetus becomes a human life is one that many debate, something often referred to as ensoulment, Stevens argues this is largely a theological and religious question with many interpretations. Therefore, the government should not determine or define it. Justice Stevens in the Webster case was pointing out the court majority is not talking about this, but I just want to say I find no secular basis for this law. And if you fast forward to today, the same problem exists in the Mississippi legislation. So the law itself has definitions in it that tell the person reading the law what all the words mean. And the legislative findings in the law refer to an embryo before 15 weeks or fetus as an unborn human being. That's their language. So when they're saying an unborn human being has a heartbeat at such and such weeks or can move at eight weeks, they're using unborn human being, their own definition of that, to define an embryo or a fetus long before viability. So in other words, the language that they're using in the acts adopts a religious conception of when life begins. They define human being as an individual member of the species Homo sapiens from and after the point of conception. That is not a secular definition. Many people in our society adhere to that, but it's not, (laughs) that doesn't make it secular. So the adoption of that definition by the Mississippi legislature is a religious value judgment and it undergirds the whole law. And that's what Justice Stevens was noting in Webster, which is the court should pick up on, not ignore, the absence of secular purposes that undergird all these legislative definitions that life begins at conception or that a human being comes into being at conception. People might agree with that and make their personal decisions based on that, which is fine and grand and how it's supposed to be. But the Mississippi legislature should not be able to adopt that value judgment. It's religious. And then make everyone in the state of Mississippi abide by it. Coming up, we hear why legal advocates are concerned that the Supreme Court is ignoring the establishment issues implicit in the argument around defining when a human life begins. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us.
Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. <laughs> 